Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week, I have Catherine Lowe with me here. She is one of the authors on a recent paper titled Measuring Speeds of Vessel Operation Around Endangered Southern Resident Killer Whales in the Salish Sea Critical Habitat. How are you doing today, Catherine? I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are and how you came into the work that you're currently doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you here. <laughs> um, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Catherine Lowe, and I'm currently a research associate with a Seattle-based nonprofit organization, Oceans Initiative. We do a lot of research on wildlife conservation for marine mammals, fish, and other species in the Pacific Northwest and in Canada, as well as other parts of the world. But I primarily work on our southern resident killer whale research, uh, doing field studies on Salmon Island during the summer, generating reports and analyses. Uh, but I've also been fortunate to work on other projects that we have going on throughout the year. But I guess before I got to this position, I was in sort of a few different places. I'm originally from Oregon and did my bachelor's of science at Oregon State University. I spent some time studying abroad in Australia and then spent a gap year after graduating doing some research in Southern Oregon and then in San Francisco before I decided to move to Florida to do my master's in 2017. So I've been bouncing around a little bit. Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so after two years working on my thesis and after I graduated, I was working in Florida for a little bit while I was trying to find sort of the opportunity to relocate back to the Pacific Northwest. Um, I knew I was meant to be back over here. <laughs> but after, I mean, it wasn't quite a year after I graduated and then COVID hit. So it was really a, quite an uncertain time for myself, especially when I was looking for a new position. And obviously for everyone else around the world, like it was quite, you know, uncertain for everyone on how things were going to go. But thankfully, Ocean's Initiative decided to give me this incredible opportunity to work on their Southern Resident Killer Whale Project. And since then, I've just been fortunate to be a part of a pretty cool community and, you know, just the chance to study the, these amazing animals. That's honestly really incredible and like pretty astonishing that you're able to do that despite COVID being a thing because I know that displaced a lot of people. Um, where did you go to school in Florida? I went to Florida Atlantic University. Okay I went to Eckerd College so I spent um, some a few years in St. Petersburg. That, they just have their undergrad program but I was wondering if there was any overlap. Oh um, cool yeah. I was, yeah I don't I blame don't you. <laughs> Northwest is amazing, especially like Florida's cool too, but like it's not the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> yeah, once you've been here, it's it's. I did leave for a few years, but it's hard to stay away for for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's I. Yeah, I don't blame you. I'm going back to Washington this weekend for the first time in two years because I used to live on Orcas Island, and 
I'm so excited to go back. I feel like I'm going to get homesick and like <laughs> want to move back there. Um, well, that's awesome. It sounds like you've bounced around quite a bit and had the opportunity to do a lot of things. So now you, is your title a researcher then with Oceans Initiative? Uh, yes. Okay. So now you're a researcher with Oceans Initiatives and you primarily just focus on the Southern resident killer whales. That's one of my primary roles is to be a part of our field team that um, we go out there during the summers to collect data. Um, we've been doing this for a few years now, but I've, I joined the team back in 2020. Awesome. Um, but during the off season, I'm, uh, I have my hands on a whole bunch of other projects that we have going on as well. So it's, yeah. it's a nice mix. Yeah. Awesome. So what prompted you guys to pick this research question? That's a great question. I mean, <laughs> I think COVID has a really big part of this. Mm -hmm. And it, in fact, it really was a big motivation for why we decided to do this photogrammetry study um, because of the temporary uh, restrictions on the size gatherings that happened in Washington state. So we basically essentially had to replace quote unquote observers with a camera so we could mm -hmm. reduce our field team to four people instead of having more, more individuals in a close proximity. Um, but besides that, obviously a lot of our research is focused on sort of ocean noise and how it impacts wildlife. And so we were, you know, looking to find more tools to, to support that sort of research. Absolutely. Um, so your study focused on using a theodolite and, um, photogrammetry methods. Can you tell our listeners what those two study methods are and what the difference between the two is? Yeah, sure. So a theodolite is kind of like a surveyor's tool. Um, it looks sort of like a fancy telescope. I don't know if you've ever seen like on the side of a road, you see construction workers with like sort of a tripod. Mm -hmm. and like a little thing that sits on top that is what a theodolite is and basically it's like an instrument that can measure the angle of an object so in our case we're looking at a whale or a boat and it measures that angle from a fixed reference point which is usually like where your position is and so when you couple a theodolite with a laptop that has like a program um, built into the, the computer it basically can store measurements that you collect in real time. And then later on, you can convert those into geographic positions. Okay. Hopefully that's not too much jargon there. <laughs> oh, definitely not too much jargon at all. Um, okay. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so I think most listeners who are probably, who have heard of a theodolite are probably more familiar with a program called Pythagoras, but we ended up using, we have a custom software that um, was created by one of our colleagues, Dr. David Bain, and he calls it Theoprog. So, it's super in tune with the settings that we need for San Juan Island. But um, essentially for like a theodolite, you need to have one person that can operate the telescope like device itself. And then you need to have a second person that can manage the computer uh, because the computer requires you to type in a lot of codes and notes while you're collecting the data. So it can get pretty hectic when um, you're on super busy days with all these whales around and lots of boats around. But um, so it's pretty important when you're in a team that you can like, communicate with each other and say everything that's going on during the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then photogrammetry is basically using a camera instead of using one of us basically using a camera instead. And it sits on top of a tripod. The way we set it up was 
we had um, what's called an intervalometer, which is basically like an external timer that you can attach to your camera. Mm -hmm. And it can basically tell the camera like when to take pictures and how often and how many needs to do. So it's kind of like happening on the side and you don't have to manually take pictures every time. So we have less people to kind of like having to manage that sort of equipment. Um, but yeah, the, the way we set it up was we had like, your camera lens has only like a certain frame size as wide as it can get. So as soon as a whale, like quote unquote, leaves the frame of your camera, mm -hmm. you have to move it. So that's really the only times that we actually have to like manage the, the camera setup okay. for photogrammetry. Cool. But, um, and basically when you're done collecting data, instead of having raw numbers that you get from like a theodolite, you end up getting hundreds of pictures from your photogrammetry setup. And then that those pictures have to get processed through a different program, which we ended up working with um, Dr. Val Beers and Scott Beers. They um, were so gracious and let us use their custom program to basically input the pictures. And then we had to process those manually and then those spit out like geographic coordinates. So essentially you get the same information at the very end, but it's just different processes. For sure. It sounds like the latter is a little bit more time consuming. Absolutely. It saves a lot of time during the field, but uh, for sure the post-processing workload is much more intense. Absolutely. So walk us through how you guys conducted your study. Yeah. So every summer we are stationed out on the west coast of San Juan Island. We have three land-based observation sites along the, the entire coast. And so essentially, you know, day to day, we're always monitoring uh, whale sighting reports and we just go out there first thing in the morning. And if we see them, we station ourselves to whatever the closest site we can get to um, that like is in the whale's path, basically, so we can catch them while they're moving up and down the island. But um, like I mentioned, we were using a theodolite and a photogrammetry setup. So both of them need to have like a specific location that's been fixed so every time we go to a site we always set up the same we set up the equipment in the same position every time and then on the side we're also collecting um AIS information which is like the automatic identification system that's on vessels uh and that's just like happening in the background but um essentially we're just on call <laughs> collecting information as as much information as we can get and um later using that to process and get some see what we find after that. Absolutely. So you guys were kind of looking at the, the whale's behavior or, you know, different changes based on the amount of noise or the amount of boats or what was like, what exactly did you guys look at a lot of things or was it just like the speed around the animals? Oh, we were looking at a lot of things. Um, we take, uh, so we also have, not only do we have like a theodolite operator and like the computer person taking on, uh, taking all those measurements. We also have two people um, taking uh, behavioral data. So that could be things like group size, um, wh what pod that it might actually be in the moment, um, what their behavioral state is. So whether they're like foraging, are they traveling, are they um, resting, mm -hmm. those sorts of activities. And then just, um, so that's one person's kind of role is taking the behavioral side of the whales. And another person is taking boat data. So we're also collecting information on like what, what kind of boats are out there, um, what size of the boats are out there, how far are they from a whale, 
and um, are they are they actively moving towards a whale or are they stalled? Um, it's all sorts of information that we're collecting to hopefully, you know, a lot of this is, it, it's ideal to like collect as much as you can during the moment because later on you might need it. Yeah, absolutely. Why is it important for us to know this information? That's a great question. <laughs> um, well, for vessel speeds, for example, I mean, not speeds in general, let's just say vessels in general, it's been shown to have a wide range of you know, impacts on cetaceans on whales and dolphins. So with killer whales, an individual might exhibit sort of an avoidance behavior or a change in their orientation, even their swimming speed and sometimes their entire behavior state. Like I was just mentioning about whether they're resting to traveling and depending on the activity it, and some of those behavioral changes can happen based on the activity of a vessel around it. So speed, for example, is really a particularly interesting component when you're looking at vessel and whale interactions, because when a, fa a faster boat is going, when there's a faster boat going nearby, the louder it's gonna be, which mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, and whales are extremely auditory animals. So when there's any reduction in their ability to hear, it can mean potentially a decrease in a success of finding a mate, could decrease their success of finding prey and even just communicating with each other in general. So, I mean, it's extremely important to be able to collect information on boat information, whether it's the distance of where a boat is to a whale or how many boats are present in the area and even with speed. And so that's why we were kind of looking forward to the information that we did collect over the summer to see how speed does play it play an important factor to impacting these the species and just other wildlife in general absolutely um what was your time frame so it was just the first summer of covid yeah so um we ended up getting sort of like a rapid response uh grant from puget sound partnership in 2020 to help us collect the southern resident killer whale observations um when there was more reduced vessel traffic mm -hmm. because of COVID-19. Um, and so because of that, it kind of stirred this, it, it kind of prompted this ability for us to be like, okay, let's see how we can build photogrammetry as another tool for collecting information since we also had to reduce our number of, the number of people in our field team. So, I mean, thankfully, in addition to the, the rapid response grant that we got. We also got other funding to help, which allowed us to kind of have these collaborations with our colleagues, with like the, the Veers and with David Bain and being able to help develop a method that was more, uh, to help develop a method that we could collect more information on vessel traffic. And it was really important to us too, because a lot of the times when management is like looking at how vessels are impacting wildlife, on a whole, like they use sound fields as like soundscape models to do that sort of um, mm -hmm. evaluation. But a lot of the times they're, they rely on an AIS derived model. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much you know about sort of the situation with AIS is that it's not required for recreational vessels. So mm -hmm. one of the issues is that you're, if you use an AIS derived model to 
the AIS database basically to create your sound models, you're basically missing a huge portion of your coastal fleet and potentially like what's the impact of a recreational vessel. Absolutely. Um, so what were the results that you guys found from your study? Um, yeah, so, well, with the help of our funders and, you know, obviously our colleagues, we were able to successfully test a really cool land-based method, another land-based method. So it's non-invasive way of tracking boats um, that don't transmit AIS uh, using the setup that was effectively more cost-effective than using theodolite tracking because it's a lot more expensive to buy a theodolite than to buy a camera. Mm -hmm. um, we ended up finding that the vessel estimates. So we were looking at speed and the positions of boats that were coming out of photogrammetry were a lot more variable than the traditional theodolite method. Um, and even though it did allow us to collect more information than we would have been able to achieve with just one theodolite, because it allowed us to not have to sacrifice like um, spending just time on whales and then spending time on boats, like we could collect a lot more information at the, at the mm -hmm. moment. Unfortunately, like I already mentioned, it did it like the time we saved in the field was a lot more offset by the time we had to take to process all of the, the images. So it's kind of like a trade off between like which one was more like important and mm -hmm. what you're looking for as like a manager and as a research scientist. But um, when we were out there collecting information, we were also collecting AIS data and we ended up finding out that almost two thirds of the boats that do transit Southern resident killer whale critical habitat weren't transmitting AIS. So like I was saying, when most spatial and sound models are being generated from AIS databases, like if you were to make one in yeah. San Juan, around San Juan Island, you'd be missing a lot of vessels. For sure. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so yeah, it, it was pretty, pretty eye opening. I was just like, wow. Okay there obviously needs to be a way to account for those missing vessels if that is something that's being done. For sure. Um, one of, you know, the kind of the narratives I've heard throughout discussions around the Southern residents is a lot of times people in the whale watching community voice concerns with recreational boaters not being accounted for or not being regulated. And this kind of makes sense as to why, because if you're not seeing it in the data, why would you regulate it? Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, that's really interesting. So I'm glad that you guys have this new method that can you know, be a little bit more accurate, even if it's more time consuming. Yeah, there's obviously a, a lot more that, like a lot more improvement that could be done. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, but, but it's nice to see that it did, like it did work essentially. Like the idea does work. It's just, you know, fine tuning some of the aspects of it. Like it would work much better at a closer site um, than where we're situated because when you have a, when you use a theodolite, it requires you to have a certain distance from shore and like an elevation. So, you know, using photogrammetry is a great option, but it might not necessarily work for like in at the same location as you would for like a theodolite site. So. Absolutely. Um, no, that totally makes sense. Uh, what kind of changes would you want to make to the photogrammetry system? Um, I think it really just depends on, I guess, you know, where it's being used mm -hmm. and what the goals are out of it. But I think a big improvement would, you know, you can always improve 
your image quality by getting a better camera. There's mm. always better lenses that are being, you know, made every single year. So it's just whether you want to invest in that sort of um, quality image and camera. And it also just depends on like where you are too, because if you do, if you are like restricted to a, a site that's pretty far off the shore, then you might want to invest in a pretty, pretty good quality camera so that you can try and get like better pixel images. But um, I think you can't go wrong with getting closer to the shore with a photogrammetry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> other than um, learning about the two different methods that you guys can use to to answer this question, what else did you guys find in the results, particularly in regard to like how boat interactions impacted the Southern residents? That's kind of going into like our other like focuses okay. that we have for this project. I would say that like for the study that we were primarily looking at, which is photogrammetry, like mm-hmm. we were just trying to see whether it was like a tool that could be used be to used. collect um, vessel information like distance and speed okay so I wouldn't necessarily be able to say out of this study this particular study if it has any more implications for how vessels are impacting wildlife but sure um yeah okay so do you guys plan to use um like this data anytime in the near future to answer some of these questions about like behavior changing yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not sure if we're going to use photogrammetry, the data that we collected from photogrammetry per se, um, but absolutely, we're going to use our theodolite data and our AIS data um, and hopefully use that in like a rather in, in a much larger model spanning over years because we have been doing this for a few years now. So the idea is to be able to, um, in the end, take all that information and see how over time, things have changed for the whales and butter behavior. Absolutely. Um, so why are like studies like this important? Like other than um, obviously getting the best data that we can, but like as far as policy goes, why is it important that we incorporate science into policy? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. I mean, I think decisions and sort of policy making by science is very important. The scientific process really allows us to kind of approach a problem with a logical, I guess, evidence-based framework. So I know there's not always a quick fix, but you know, with scientific reasoning and the chance to pursue our questions, you would think that it'd be like an effective resource to getting more effective results. I, I, it's always gonna be an ever-changing process. Like there's it's not always going to be a linear sort of uh, thought process or, or way of getting from, you know, evidence to, to action, but sure. the more knowledge that you can gain from, you know, the scientific inquiry and the more opportunity, there's basically more opportunity to help refine those policies that are going to end up being more timely and more proactive. I think like as a scientist, we have the opportunity to help policymaking by being able to communicate our findings and being able to actively engage with them through that process. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, when we go back and look on um, different policies that were put into place, they don't always make sense. Like um, 
I remember like way back in like the early 1900s, they were like shooting orcas with cannons because they were eating the salmon. Like that's not a great measure for like a balanced ecosystem. Um, So, you know, and I think had they had the science, they would have maybe done something a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really important. So, you know, obviously you've done this study and it's given us more like accurate information or a more accurate way, even if it is more time consuming, can we apply like these study methods to other areas um, or other types of marine mammals, not just cetaceans? Yeah, I think so for sure. I think, I think it's always gonna be a balance of, you know, fine tuning the tools to the specific location. So um, it's gonna take some time to, to figure out what's the best um, settings for that. Um, it does take a bit of setup before you can actually use the equipment. So, um, I mean, it's just kind of with any field research, you're always gonna have to do the pre-field season work and make sure everything is working for your location and for your your research goals all also but i think honestly like depending on where you are on the shore it could ease it could be a cool tool to use for wildlife um obviously it's only going to work for something that comes to the surface so (laughs) but um it just makes it more challenging if you're not very close to the shore or if you don't have a have a strong enough camera because you won't it's going to be pretty difficult to see those in the images um, when you're processing, but that's why it was um, a good tool to use for boats because they're usually stationary or if they're moving, you can kind of like flip through the pictures to see like what direction they're moving. Um, but yeah, I think there's always a way to fine tune the, the tools to make it suited for your location if you were to use it somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is a question I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. What do you think we can learn from the whales? Well, I think I can think of two things really right now. Um, I think the first thing I want to say is that we can learn resiliency from them. I mean, we faced so many unprecedented challenges with COVID, political, social, and so many other things. I think... (laughs) as humans, we're kind of on the cusp of really burning out if we haven't already. Uh, I mean, since I first came to Friday Harbor in summer 2020 to do the first, to do my first um, Southern Resident Killer Whale field season, that was when COVID was extremely heightened and we didn't really know how severe it was going to be. So I think we've been kind of living in so much stress and uncertainty that I hope that we can remember to try to stay resilient as much as who's going to listen to me, but I mean, I know it's cliche, but there is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully sure. <laughs> there will be. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And the whales are definitely very resilient. Like they've lived through like ecosystem collapse, the captivity era, um, colonization, and now they're like in these noisy polluted waters. So there's exactly happening. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think we could take a, a few pointers from them for sure yeah. with that. But the second thing I wanted to say was just kind of their social bonds and they have such a strong bond with each other and how well they're able to communicate with each other as well. Um, so I just hope we can kind of take a thing or two from them and learn to appreciate our own people and the connections we have and just be better at communicating with each other. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's definitely a good takeaway. Humans are social creatures. I think we forget that sometimes. And especially Mm -hmm. in COVID when a lot of people have had to isolate for long periods of time. Yeah, I remember when it first started and I was actually still living in Florida. I, I didn't leave my apartment for a month, I think, because I was, I didn't want to be like someone that might be spreading it out or Mm -hmm. just, you know, it's, you start to isolate yourself and it can be kind of sad for a while. So just remember to keep in touch with everyone and (laughs) yes, definitely together. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. No, I think that's, that pretty much covers it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I did post the link to the paper below. Um, and Catherine did say if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out and ask her. Um, so feel free to do that. Also, I put the links to Ocean's Initiative as well as Orca Conservancy below. Um, so if you guys want to go support those organizations or find more information, you can find their websites in the description of this episode. Also, uh, Delphinus Orchestra, which is a musical group based out of Texas, just finished putting together their album, um, and they have a free YouTube playlist, um, but they also do have an Etsy playlist as well if you want to support their organization. They're really big on supporting cetaceans, um, and they incorporate noises of cetaceans into their music, which is super cool. Um, you can use the code breaching extinction for $2 off. So I also put a link to that down here, but go support them because they're super awesome. And, um, the, one of the artists that is in this group is actually Brittany Jandick's husband, and she's been on the podcast before. She is a scientist out of Texas. So, um, definitely go check it out. Have a good rest of your week. Bye.